Good morning. morning. We're going to be continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Last week we began chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke by looking at two very popular and familiar parables that Jesus taught. Uh, Jesus had a group of tax collectors and sinners that had drawn near to him in order to hear from him. But they weren't the only ones that were part of the multitude that had gathered around Jesus. There was also a group of Pharisees and scribes amongst the group, and they took offense when they saw Jesus mingling with tax collectors and sinners, and they complained about Jesus and how he received sinners and how he ate with them. To the Pharisees and the scribes, this was completely unacceptable. These tax collectors and sinners were the outcasts of society. They believed that if Jesus truly was who he said he was, then he wouldn't have had any interaction with these sorts of people. But they were greatly mistaken. These were the very people that Jesus had come to seek and save. Those who were the outcasts. Those who were lost in their sin. As the Son of Man, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, according to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, according to Mark chapter 2, verse 17. And in order to illustrate that point, Jesus spoke some parables directed towards the Pharisees and scribes as a means of addressing their complaint. Now, the first parable that we looked at at the beginning of chapter 15 was the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, Jesus spoke of how a shepherd will leave the 99 to go after a single lost sheep and how the shepherd will greatly rejoice when he finds that one sheep and returns it to the fold. Jesus concluded that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Then Jesus continued to a second parable that was much like the first. It was the parable of the lost coin. In this parable, Jesus described how a woman who lost one single coin from a thread of 10 coins, a strand of 10 coins, searched frantically until she found that very special coin. It was believed that that one coin was part of a set that was strung together as a sort of a necklace or garland-like piece of jewelry to signify her marriage, much like what we consider our wedding ring. We wear a wedding ring today. It has jewelry in it. Be kind of like losing a diamond out of there. And so she lost this one coin. She frantically searches for it until she finds it. And when she found the lost coin, she rejoiced. She called all of her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her over the found coin. Again, Jesus concluded by saying, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over the sinner, over one sinner who repents. And though we pulled out a few different points uh, during our study, the main overarching application of both parables was the joy that is had in heaven over sinners who repent and turn from their sin. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to share yet another parable, okay? a parable that deals primarily with the same overarching application regarding what we discovered in the first two parables, the shared joy in heaven when one sinner repents and turns to the Lord. The first parable was called the parable of the lost sheep. The second parable was called the parable of the lost coin. And this third parable that we're going to cover this morning is called the parable of the lost son, or what's more commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. And while these parables are very similar in their overarching application, we're going to see that there's a lot more to unpack here in this parable than what we did in the first two parables. This parable is much more detailed than the first two, and as such, there's more for us to glean from it. 
So our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 15, verses 11, all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 32. And the title of our study is going to be Family Matters, okay? Family Matters. I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read through the entirety of our text, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to lead and guide us through His Word. Luke continues his account of Jesus' parables spoken to the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 11. It says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity that we have to open up your word, allow your word just to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that uh, your word is active, it's living, Lord, it's powerful. Uh, Lord, we know that it will accomplish that which you set it forth to do. And so, Lord, we want to just yield ourselves to you and your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would lead us and guide us. Holy Spirit, that you would uh, just reveal truth to us as we go through this, that we would understand the immediate context of this parable that was being spoken in response to the Pharisees' complaints, but that we'd also understand how we might apply it to our own lives today. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us open minds that we might receive all that your Spirit has for us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. The first two parables of chapter 15 we covered last week were rather short without a lot of great detail. Uh, The parable of the lost sheep was four verses long. The parable of the lost coin, only three verses long. But this parable is 22 verses long. Jesus gives a lot more detail to this parable than he did the first two parables. Jesus was trying to get through to these Pharisees and scribes. He wanted to make sure they didn't miss what he was teaching through these parables. We must not forget that the context of the parable of the lost son is the same as the first two parables. Tax collectors and sinners have gathered around Jesus to hear from him. They are responding to Jesus' call at the end of chapter 14 for all those who have ears to hear to come and hear. While the Pharisees and scribes have gathered around Jesus to complain to him about his association with these outcasts of society. And so I've decided to break our text down into three major sections this morning, okay? If you're an outliner or note taker, you might want to jot this down. In the first section, we're going to look at the details surrounding the lost son, okay? The lost son in verses 11 through 19. In the second section, we will look at the details surrounding the loving father in verses 20 through 24. And then lastly, we will look at the details surrounding the loveless brother in verses 25 through 32. And as we go through each section, we're going to make some observations. We'll make some points regarding each of these three family members and who they represent. Remember that this is a parable. Okay? It is an earthly story meant to convey a heavenly truth. We want to understand the immediate context of why Jesus spoke this parable to the Pharisees and the scribes, but we also want to know and understand what Jesus is saying to us, right? Okay? Uh, at the conclusion of our study, we're kind of look to make some application to our own lives, uh, not just to understand the immediate context, how it applied to the Pharisees and the scribes and the tax collectors and sinners, but how this applies to each and every one of us. All right? All right. With that, let's go ahead. We'll jump into this first part of the first section dealing with the lost son. Read with me verses 11 through 13 just to get us started. Then he said, this is Jesus, of course, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possession with prodigal living. Jesus starts this parable out by introducing the three main characters. There's a man, a father, Okay, and his two sons. And as we go through the parable, we're going to note the various attitudes and the actions of these three family members, and we're going to look to glean what the Lord would have for us. To begin with, I believe it is very clear that the two sons in this parable are meant to be representative of the two different groups of people that Jesus is before. All right, we have the tax collectors and the sinners on one hand. They are represented, I believe, by the youngest son, the the Uh, the younger of the two, okay? And then we have the Pharisees and the scribes, who I believe are clearly portrayed by the eldest son. The father, of course, in this account is meant to be representative of our heavenly father, the Lord himself. In verse 12, we're told that the younger son came to his father and requested from him his portion of the goods that fell to him. The word word goods 
Okay, it carries with it the idea of possessions, uh, property, or wealth. In this context, it's speaking of the father's estate. Basically, the younger son was requesting from his father the portion that was due to him as a son and heir of the estate. He wanted his inheritance then and there. All right? Now, normally an inheritance would not be given until the father had passed away or until the father came to a place in his life where he no longer desired to manage the estate and then he would uh, he was ready to hand it over to his children and then he would go ahead and divide it up and kind of hand it over. And so you don't have to wait until uh, the death in order to receive your portion, but it definitely was something that the father uh, would decide. In such a case, uh, the eldest son would receive a double portion in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17, which stated that the firstborn was to be given a double portion of all that the father had. And so the younger son would receive whatever was left over. Uh, and so in this case, where there were two sons, well, the first son would get two-thirds of the estate, and the youngest son would get the remaining third. Now, while it wasn't completely abnormal for a father to divide up his estate prior to his death, it was a clear affront, and it was completely disrespectful for a son to come and demand it of his father. The estate was the father's to give at his own discretion, not at the demand of his son's. The youngest son was basically saying he didn't want to wait around any longer for his father to die, or he didn't want to wait around any longer for his father to decide, okay, it's time for me to hand it over. He basically said, I want it now. Okay? The youngest son wanted his father's goods, but he didn't want anything to do with the father. Okay? He was ready to cash in on his relationship and depart from his father and treat him as if he were already dead and gone. The request of the youngest son, it shows to us a rebellious, unloving, independent spirit that selfishly only cared about himself. The tax collectors and the sinners, they were living that sort of life, a life of rebellion, a life of sinfulness and selfishness. They only cared about whatever was best for them, and they were not concerned about how their action impacted their relationship with their heavenly father. Now, surprisingly, the father acquiesces to the son's request. And he divides up his livelihood in order to give the son his portion. Though the father loved the son, and he greatly desired to be with his son, he allowed the son to make his own decisions. He did not confront his son and tell him how disrespectful it was for him to make such a request. He did not tell him how much it hurt for him to make such a request, but he simply allowed the son to make his own choices, even though the father no doubt knew his son was headed in the wrong direction. And I believe this is an important detail regarding this particular parable. Just like the father gave his son the power to choose for himself, so too the Lord gives to us the power to choose. God has given us a free will to choose to live for the Lord or to live for ourselves. He does not demand us to be with him, to live for him, to stay by his side. He gives us a free will and he has empowered us to make our own decisions. Even though the father knows what is best for us, he still gives us the freedom to choose for ourselves. And I believe this is an important element of this parable. Well, it didn't take long for the youngest son to gather his goods and get out of town. The fact that the son was able to leave in just a few days 
gives us an indication as to how long he had been thinking about leaving. You see, this wasn't some decision made on a whim. He had a plan, he knew what he wanted to do, and he executed that plan. When it describes him as gathering all together, the sense is that he cashed in on the value of his father's estate that was left to him, meaning that he probably sold his portion of the farm along with any livestock or other properties that were left to him for cold, hard cash. Okay, And with cash in hand, the youngest son set off for a far-off country. You see, the picture we see here is that the son couldn't wait to get as far as possible from the influence and watchful eye of his father. Perhaps he felt restrained from his father, like his father was keeping him from being able to enjoy some of the finer things of this life. He wanted to get as far away from him as possible to throw off the yoke of bondage to his father and experience life out on his own. The son wanted to live his life his own way, to be his own master, to get out from under the rules of his home and his father, and the money that he got from his inheritance gave him that opportunity. The son thought that he was throwing off the yoke of bondage, but in reality what he was doing was exchanging the light yoke of the father for a far heavier one that he would not be able to endure. The son is said to have wasted his possessions with prodigal living. This is where the title of the parable, the prodigal son, comes from. Uh, The word prodigal is only actually used in the New King James Version. Uh, But the word prodigal in the Greek, it speaks of being wasteful or reckless, wild and riotous. It carries the idea of being completely given up to dissipation and licentiousness, debauchery and extravagance. Again, this is meant to be a description of the tax collectors and sinners. They were actively living in opposition to the Lord, openly living their lives in sin and wastefulness. But this is also a picture of all of us. You see, Paul describes what our lives were like before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He describes how we all once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, okay, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Peter speaks likewise, writing about how we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Some of us may have lived for the world a little bit longer than others, but we all were born into sin. And we've all lived lives contrary to the Lord. We lived in opposition to Him and His will for our lives, just like the prodigal son. And so we might look at the prodigal son and say, oh man, what a horrible person. But you guys, we have to understand, that is a representation of you and I, where we once were. Okay? I don't know how long you've been walking with the Lord, okay? but I know that I didn't come to know the Lord until I was 21 years old. I had 21 years to, to get my fill of the, of the world. Okay? And God pulled me out of that thing. But you know, I've been walking with the Lord now for longer than that. So <laughs> won't say how long, but you know, long enough. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not young. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on. <laughs> As we're going to see, 
this kind of lifestyle doesn't last long. Okay? Let's read what happened next in verses 14 through 16. It says, But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. The son squandered all of his possessions, and he was left with nothing. He had spent all that he had trying to satisfy himself with the things of the world, only to find that the things of this world could not satisfy They left him empty and without anything. The scriptures describe the pleasures of sin as passing, as temporary. Our flesh is temporarily satisfied, but it is never fulfilled when we live for this world and the things of this world. Hebrews 11.25 tells us that. Wild living may offer short-term thrills, but it all amounts to one great big waste. It's all vanity meaninglessness and nothingness resulting in emptiness. This is what the preacher writes in Ecclesiastes. He said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. The world and the things of this world will never satisfy. And after he had spent all that he had, a severe famine came upon the land and led to the young son being in want. The wording here carries the idea of being destitute. He's unable to care for and provide for his own needs. And so the son decided to join himself to a citizen of that far off country and do for him what he was unwilling to do for his father to work the fields and to feed the animals. Now the wording here is very interesting. It carries the idea of great desperation. The term joined himself, it comes from the Greek word kolao, and it means to adhere to or cleave to or to be glued to. The root kolo is glue. And so we get the idea is he glued himself to this man. He stuck to this man with everything that he had. He claved to him. It wasn't just that he found work through some guy, but that he clung to this guy in desperation, okay? He was glued to him as if his very life depended upon it. Now, the fact that he had to work to feed swine was bad enough. Swine were unclean animals according to the Mosaic law and most Jews wouldn't have anything to do with them. But not only did he have to feed the swine, he actually longed to eat the slop that he was feeding to the swine. Okay, What great shame and dishonor for a Jewish male. Not only did he have to work for a Gentile and make himself a slave, but on top of that, he had to feed swine. And this represents the low of the low. The youngest son had ruined his life. He couldn't get much lower. This, disp- this, this depiction of the youngest son was Jesus' way of showing what sin really does in our lives when we reject the Father's will for us. You see, sin promises freedom, but it only brings bondage. Okay? It promises success, but it brings failure. Sin promises satisfaction and fulfillment, but only leaves us empty and broken. It promises us the good life, but it only brings about an awful death. 
Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. The son was left all alone. He had nothing and no one was willing to give him anything. Nobody cared about him. He would have gladly ate pig slop, but he couldn't even get his fellow workers to give him that. What would he do? Was he ready to give up on this life he so desperately longed for? Let's read verses 17 through 19 and see how, what he decides to do. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The phrase came to himself was a Hebraic idiom used to speak of acceptance of responsibility and repentance. Okay, literally, the phrase means to come to a right mind. And I like that idea because we often say that repentance literally means a change of mind. To repent means to, to change your mind. But I kind of like the idea of seeing it more like coming to a right mind. And the picture of repentance, therefore, is not just a change of mind, but a change to a right mind. Okay? It isn't just changing your mind, but coming to a right uh, mind and understanding, seeing and thinking things as God would have us to see them and think of them. And this change to a right mind will then lead to a change in direction, a change in action. A person who genuinely repents will have a change of mind that leads to a change in action. They will have change to the right mind that is followed by right actions. I do think it worth noting here that this was a very necessary point along the way for the wayward son. He needed to repent. He had a responsibility to repent. He needed to change his mind to come to a right mind. And I do believe that it's very interesting that when we compare the previous two parables to this one, Both the previous parables, the parable of the sheep and the parable of the lost coin, emphasize the fact that the sheep and the coin did not do anything in and of themselves to be found. It was the shepherd and it was the woman who searched after and found the lost item. They took the initiative. They sought after the lost coin. But here in the parable of the lost son, there's an emphasis upon the son's need to repent while the father allowed him to make his own choices. Now, all three of the parables do speak of the need for repentance. For Jesus' concluding remark for each of the previous two parables spoke of the joy over one sinner who repents. But I do feel that Jesus emphasizes here the sovereignty of God in the first two parables, but emphasizes the responsibility of man and his free will in this third parable. Now, all three of these parables are about the salvation experience about people coming to faith, about people who were lost and then found, and the joy that comes over one sinner that enters into a right relationship with the Lord. And I think Jesus emphasizes both God's sovereignty and man's free will because both are part of the salvation experience. You know, in our finite minds, we find these very hard to believe. We look at God's sovereignty and man's free will as polar opposites. We cannot see how these beliefs can be uh, true at the same time. 
You see, in our minds, these seem to be what we refer to as parallel truths, truths that never intersect. We cannot see how God is completely 100% sovereign over his creation, and yet at the same time, man is 100% responsible to choose for himself the direction that he will go. In our minds, it's either one or the other. Either God is sovereign and he chose us and predestined us and elected us as his own without any say from us, or it's the other extreme. We ourselves made up our own mind. We chose to repent and come to the right mind. We chose to follow the Lord using our own free will apart from God's interference. The truth of the matter is that we must admit that it is impossible for us to fully understand the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will. Only God truly knows how they work together in his plan of salvation. You know, one commentator I read from wrote the following regarding these doctrines. He said, with this doctrine, probably more so than with any other, it is crucially important to admit our inability to fully grasp the nature of God and our relationship with him. Going too far to either side results in distorted understanding of salvation. Look, if we go all the way over here and say, 100% God's sovereign, man has nothing to do with it, absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter. God chose you. You're elected. You can you know, do whatever you want. You're chosen. You know? that, that's an extreme way to look at it. That's not healthy. Or we can go over to the other side and say, hey, it's all dependent upon you. You better make sure that you're all right. Oh, you just sinned. You better confess that sin. If not, you, you, your salvation hangs in the balance. You're responsible for it. And we get these extremes where we place our flag on one or the other. We ended up with a distorted view of our salvation. Listen, you guys, the Bible teaches very clearly the sovereignty of God. The Bible teaches us that we were chosen by God before the very foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us. The Bible teaches us that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son based upon his supreme foreknowledge. Romans 8 29 tells us that. But the Bible also teaches us the responsibility of man and our need to respond to God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 states that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We have a responsibility to respond, to confess, to believe. Joshua exhorted the Jews, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A choice, a responsibility. When it comes to the doctrine of God's sovereignty and man's free will and responsibility, God doesn't ask us to reconcile the two. They don't need reconciliation. C.H. Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other, and his response was this, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. And, and this is an important point that we must grasp. In the Bible, God's divine sovereignty and man's human responsibility are not enemies. 
J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, these two doctrines are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. Our responsibility is not to reconcile these truths or to pick one truth over the other. Our responsibility is to believe God's word and apply it to our lives as best as our finite minds can comprehend. Somewhere along the road, these truths do meet. Where exactly that is, I cannot tell you. Okay? But I'm okay with that. I'm okay with trusting and serving a God whose mind and comprehension far exceeds my own. Okay? That's part of what makes God divine and me not <laughs> divine. Okay? It makes me uh, fallen, human. And it's okay if God doesn't fit into our theological boxes that we make for Him because our God is much bigger than our boxes. Okay? Well, this young prodigal son, he came to his senses, sitting there amongst some pigs that were better fed than he was. He reflected on life back home and remembered how well fed even the hired servants of his father were, how well they were treated, how they had plenty for themselves, and even some despair, and he decided to return to his father. The son decided that he would get up depart from his life of sin and return to his father. He would confess his sin against God and his father and he would acknowledge the fact that he was no longer worthy to be called a son and he would ask that he would be made like one of his father's hired servants. It is important to note the kind of servant the son was aspiring to be. In those days, there were different kinds of servants. There were the doulos. Okay? These were domestic servants who lived with the master within his own dwelling. There were the pietists. These were servants that performed menial tasks but lived on the farm, not within the house, but upon the property. And then there were the misthos. These were the temporary hired workers who did not live on the farm but only came and worked for certain specific jobs and tasks and then departed when they were finished. No housing would be provided for this sort of servant. Okay? All three servants are actually represented in this parable. We'll talk about, I'll show you where they're at. The servant that the son aspired to be was this last one, the misthos, the hired servant that had no right to dwell anywhere near the presence of the master. The son was not expecting a place for him in his father's house. He was resigned to the fact that he had blown that opportunity and the best that he could hope for now was to simply be able to work for his father as a temporary hired servant. Something that really stood out to me in my studies was the wording that's used here by the son. Before, he demanded of his father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. But here, his words to his father are going to be, make me like one of your hired servants. What a stark contrast. Father, give me my goods, contrasted with father, Make me a servant. How do we communicate with our Heavenly Father? Are we more apt to say, Father, give me the goods, or is our heart, Father, make me your servant? There's an old simple song out there called uh, Make Me a Servant. The lyrics are very simple. Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, make me a servant. Make me a servant. Make me a servant today.
I love that simple, sincere song. And I believe that this is the kind of heart that God desires from each of us. That we would come to him humbly and simply desire to be a servant for him. What a joy and honor it is to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May our heart always be, make me a servant and not one that demands, God, give me the goods. Let's turn to our next major section of our text, looking at the response of the loving father in verses 20 through 24. It says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Here we read the son arose, he went to his father. And this is important for us to note as well. The son had to put his thoughts into action. Repentance is a change to a right mind that leads to the right action. You know, he could have acknowledged his sin. He could have realized that he was reaping what he had sown and stayed in that far off country without ever coming to his father. But he didn't do that. He not only acknowledged his sin, but he was putting faith into action and turning from that sin returning to his father. And as he was on his way and still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran to his son, fell on his neck, and kissed him. We get the sense from these details that the father was watching and waiting for his son to return. He saw him coming while he was still a long distance away. I imagine that the loving father looked out toward the horizon on a daily basis, looking for and hoping for the return of his son. And that day finally came, you know, much in the same way God waits for and watches for us to turn to him. And each time we do, he is there waiting for us, ready to receive us to himself. This is the kind of God that we serve, one longing to receive us and to take us in as his own. And as a demonstration of his great love for his son, the father does something that was unheard of in those days. The father ran to meet his son. For the patriarch of the family to run was to lose all caution and dignity, but this was of no concern to the father. He could care less about what others may think of him running to his son. It mattered not. When he met up with his son, he fell on his neck and kissed him. The phrase fell on his neck, simply describing a a warm embrace, a a hug, to hug tightly to someone. You see, the father threw his arms around the son and smothered him with kisses. The love of the father was on full display as he unashamedly lavished his love upon his son. The sins of the son were great and they were many, but the love of the father was greater still. While in the embrace of his father, the son began to confess his sin and to share his prepared statement towards his father, hoping beyond hope that he could be made into one of his father's servants. But as the son began to share his confession, the father did not even bother to listen to the fullness of his son's prepared speech. 
He interrupted him and did not speak a single word about the sins of his son. Instead, the father called out to his household servants, okay, the doulos, to bring him the best robe and to put it upon his son, to bring him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And each of these items, they carried a great deal of symbolism. The robe was meant to cover over the flesh to show that his sins and misdeeds had been covered. The ring spoke of authority and power. The son came to his father in weakness and humility, but the father elevated him and empowered him. The sandals spoke of his restored position in the family as a son, for hired servants were not given shoes to wear. You know, in like manner, when we return to the Lord, he does the same for us. He covers us with the righteousness of Christ. The prophet Isaiah describes how we are covered with the robe of righteousness in Isaiah 61 verse 10. And Paul talks about how we have become the righteousness of God in and through Christ. As we come humbly before the Lord, He showers us with His grace and He elevates us and He empowers us by His Holy Spirit. And He welcomes us into His family as sons and as daughters, as children of God. The Father fully received His repentant Son back to Himself and provided for all of His needs and then some. Instead of receiving a beating from His Father, like some might think, oh man, you... You're going to get it, right? For all of his misdeeds, what did the son receive? The blessings of the father by his grace. The father called for the fatted calf to be brought out and prepared for a great feast. He called upon all to eat and be merry for the father's son who was once dead was alive again. He was once lost but now was found. And the picture here is the same as in the two previous parables, right? There is great rejoicing and celebration to be had over the repentance of one single sinner. The son who was once dead was alive again. The son who was once lost was now been found. What a great description of each of us. We were all once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 tells us. We were all hopelessly lost in sin, but God reached out to us. He found us. He poured out His grace upon us. We came to Him and He brought us into His family as sons and daughters. What a joyous occasion to be a part of. All were invited to rejoice and to celebrate with the Father. But not everyone was so excited for the return of this lost son. Let's take a look at our final section, dealing with the loveless brother. We'll start off by looking at verses 25 through 27, just to set the scene. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. The older son, he was out in the field, being diligent to the needs of the farm, working hard. And as he came in from his work, he heard music and dancing. There was a party going on, but he didn't know the reason or cause for such celebration. It is evident that the older brother was not keeping a watchful eye out for the return of his brother like his father was. Instead, he focused upon doing the work that was needed to be done. Remember that Jesus shares this parable to the Pharisees and scribes. Many people know about the parable of the lost son, right? We talk about the parable of the prodigal son. We talk about, you know, the son coming back and the love of the father. But you guys, we have to remember that this parable has been directed to the Pharisees and the scribes, okay? The important part of this parable 
the application to the audience that he's speaking to is this tail end here. Okay? Many people forget about that. Okay? We cannot miss this importance. The older son was focused upon his works done on behalf of the father, but as we'll see, his heart was not truly in his work. And so he asked one of the servants. This was one of the servants that would live in the farm, not, in, not a doulos, uh, but one that would live on the property. What was going on? And he was informed that his brother had returned. And because the father had received him safe and sound, the father had killed the fatted calf in celebration. Let's continue reading our text. We'll see how the older brother responded to this action of the father. Verse 28 says, But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. The older brother was angry. And he would not partake in the celebration. He was angry with his father for not giving him as much as a young goat that he might make merry with his friends. And, as he, and he was angry towards his brother who had devoured his father's livelihood with harlotry and yet was openly received by the father upon his return. And when the father heard that his eldest son would not come in, he went out to him and he pleaded with him entreating him and earnestly requesting that he come in and join with the celebration. But the son would not. He could not bring himself to rejoice and celebrate the return of his brother. In fact, it's interesting to note that the older brother doesn't even acknowledge him as his brother when he speaks of him. He simply refers to him as this son of yours. It was as if the older son had completely written off his brother. He wanted nothing to do with him. Now, in the response of the older son, we see that while his outward actions seemed right, okay, he was diligently working the fields. His inward attitudes were rotten to the core. We see that the son had a very high regard for himself. He claimed to never have transgressed the commandments of his father at any time, and he described his work towards the father as faithful. But it would seem that his heart for serving was not out of a genuine desire to serve his father, but so that he would receive a reward. He was bitter that his father didn't give him what he felt he deserved, what he had earned through his work. He felt like his work went unappreciated, unrewarded. The older son was serving the father in order to receive a blessing, not to be a blessing. The son was very quick to point out the sins of his older brother, to even speculate as to what he had done. How could he have known that his brother spent his money on harlotry? He didn't know that. He just assumed the worst out of him and accused him without any evidence whatsoever. Perhaps the son did engage in harlotry. We don't know for certain. But that didn't stop the older son from accusing him of such. The older son's bitterness towards the flagrant sins of his younger brother only served as a weak attempt to cover up his own hidden sins of the heart. You guys, this was a perfect picture of the Pharisees and the scribes. Just like the older brother, they were focused upon their external works. 
They were angry towards Jesus for taking in and associating with tax collectors and sinners. They were invited to be part of God's kingdom, but they refused to enter in themselves. The religious elite, they had a high regard for themselves and did their works in order to receive a blessing, feeling as though they deserved and they merited divine favor from God. The Pharisees and the scribes were very quick to point out the outward sins of others while concealing their own wicked hearts. This was a perfect picture of the Pharisees and the scribes. Let's look to our final verses. We'll wrap this study up. Verse 31 and 32. The father responds to the older son and said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Here we read of the father's response to the eldest son. The father reminded his son that everything the father owned was his. Okay, The younger son had cashed out. That means everything there was, was the older son's. Right? The son was bitter because he felt like he deserved the blessings of the father. But what he failed to realize is that the blessings were all his all along simply because he was the son. Right? It had nothing to do with his works. The blessings of the Father were his based upon relationship, not based upon his works. Not only that, but even more importantly, the oldest son had the Father. Unfortunately, the older son did not see the great value in a continual relationship with the Father. The Father greatly loved the older son just as much as he loved the younger son. The Father valued that relationship that he had with the older son, but the feelings did not seem to be reciprocated. The Father corrected the hard-heartedness of the eldest son, explaining to him how it was the right thing to do, to make merry and to be glad. For his brother who was dead was alive again. He was lost, but now was found. And the implication, you guys, is quite obvious here. The Pharisees... And the scribes were complaining about Jesus accepting tax collectors and sinners, but they should have been rejoicing that sinners were repenting. Right? Those who were once dead in their sins and trespasses were being given new life. They were being given new hope. Those who were lost in sin were being found, brought into God's kingdom, and this ought to have been given. This ought to have given this ought to have given the Pharisees and scribes reason to rejoice. But how did they respond? They complained. Guys, in in conclusion, I think it's important. You know, we look at this and we say, oh, you know, there's the the prodigal son and the the elder son, and and we can try to relate with either one of them. I think it's important that we understand this parable, how it applies to us today. Do we identify with the lost son? Maybe some of us do. Maybe some of us can remember those days of prodigal living when we were far from the Lord, when we thought, I want to be my own master and I want to do things my own way. And through God's grace, He came and He, and he met us, right? Do we identify with this lost son and that we've confessed and, and repented from our sin? You know, is our prayer, Father, make me a servant. Have we experienced the grace of the Father being poured out over us and acknowledged that grace in our lives? 
Or do we identify more with the older son? Are we focused upon our works, thinking that they will merit God's favor? Are we angry or bitter towards God when we see others receive God's blessings? Have we separated ourselves from fellowship because we can't stand to be with certain people in the body? Are we quick to point out others' sins while concealing our own? Have we failed to realize that the blessings of God are ours, not through our works, but through our relationship as sons and daughters of the King? And I think we can identify with both at times. I I can remember what it was like before I came to know the Lord. And I'm grateful for the grace that was extended to me. And I can identify with that prodigal son. Man, get me out of this place. I've been walking with the Lord for a long time now. And I can look at the older son and I can see some tendencies in my own heart sometimes where I can get a little bit calloused and thinking, my God, you know what? I'm, I'm doing this for you, God. Come on. And we expect God to do things for us. And we think that God, we've earned or merited some kind of favor. I think we can identify with both. You know, if you identify more so with the older son, I want to encourage you, that's okay. There is hope for you yet. Because you have the freedom to choose to turn from those ways and to come to your right mind just like the younger son did. If you will confess your sins and repent of them, God will be there to welcome you back. He is waiting and watching for us to finally turn everything over to Him. And He wants to lavish His love upon us, and He will do so whenever we turn to Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for these parables here in Luke chapter 15, the joy that there is, Lord, in our salvation. Lord, may we be constantly reminded of that joy, of the great work that you did in our lives. And Lord, may we rejoice as you do that work in the lives of those around us. And Lord, we do ask for your work to be done in and through us and in and through the people around us. Lord, we pray for a mighty outpouring of your spirit, not just uh, in this church, Lord, but in the, in the chapel and uh, Rock Point and Faith Baptist and all the different churches within this uh, city here in Iwakuni. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be poured out in a powerful way. And Lord, that people's lives would be impacted for all of eternity. Lord, we thank you for the work you've done in us. And Lord, we thank you that it is all by grace and that we have the blessings of you, our Heavenly Father, not because of our works, Lord, but because of the grace you've extended upon us. Lord, because of our relationship with you as sons and daughters. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rest in that truth. Lord, that we would be comforted, and Lord, that we would know that you are always there for us, ready to receive us. If we ever should wander from you, you are there to receive us and welcome us back. We thank you for your grace that is so lavishly poured out upon us. We thank you for your love, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.